Good morning, North Star Church. All right. So I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this weekend is wrapping up a pretty big deal in Division I athletics. We got March Madness that's culminating with the Final Four this weekend. If you don't know, that's the National NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Tournament that starts with 64 teams, works its way down to the Final Four, and then Monday night plays for the National Championship. And out of those teams, right, what happens is some get automatically selected and others Others get selected because of their record and, and other things. And they have this thing every year called Selection Sunday. All right? And on Selection Sunday, which happened a couple of weeks ago, is where teams get together, their coach, and they're waiting to find out if they got in and where they got in, who are they playing, all that sort of a thing. And, and, and how many of you know when you get selected for something important, you feel really good, right? In fact, Arizona State men's basketball, uh, we got a, a clip of them on their selection Sunday from last year. Check out how excited they were when they got selected for the national tournament. <laughs> yeah. Woo! Hold on, wait for it, wait for it. And you got to jump in the pool. I mean, you got to just jump in the pool. You know, like I said, when you get picked, selected for something important, you feel really good about yourself, right? I remember in elementary school, I used to love PE when we would have kickball time, right? Because at kickball time, we had to select who was going to be on the team, and I knew I was a good athlete, and I was always kind of a first-round draft pick in kickball, and so I just, I just couldn't wait. I got so excited, but when it's something, when it's a big deal, even bigger than kickball in elementary school, you get really fired up. This individual got into Harvard at 16 years old, and check out how excited him and his family were when they found that out. 16-year-old Ayrton Little was surrounded by classmates, and a camera was recording the moment he learned he was accepted to Harvard. <laughs> I gotta admit, I graduated from Richmond, but I was really excited when I got into Harvard too. And uh, so funny, gosh, we're laughing in the first service. Anyway, so, but, but here's the thing. Sometimes we get selected for something, we get picked for something, drafted if you will, called out if you will, invited for something that seems a little bit too big for us. Something that feels like maybe a little bit out of our league. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I've had situations in my life. I've had opportunities come my way that I look, gosh, when I look at myself, my own talent, experience, my gifting, I'm going, oh, I, don't, I don't know that I'm the right person for the job. And when we get selected for something like that, we can kind of feel a little bit like RJ when he was out on the diving board. Check out RJ. Oh, look at the knees. The knees just get me every time. <laughs> that poor guy. <laughs> that poor guy. One, two, three, go. Uh, I'm going to just sit down. <laughs> I'm just going to sit down. Like, look, we get called into stuff, and sometimes it's like, man, I, I don't really know that I'm the right person for the job. I'll tell you about one individual I heard about. Uh, true story, his name was, was Harry. Harry Colcord got selected for something that was 
was a little too big for him. But, but in order to really explain Harry, his, his fear and insecurity, I actually have to tell you about the person that he used to work for. The person he used to work for, his name was Charles Blondin, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Blondin, but Charles Blondin was in the 1800s, and in 1859, Charles had a vision to be the first person to cross over Niagara Falls on a tightrope right? Charles was actually a professional acrobat, an aerialist. He was from France, so maybe that was the problem, right? But he was, he, he had this idea to cross over Niagara Falls on a tightrope, and, and not only was he this skilled acrobat, right? But he also was like a master marketer. And so this was happening in upstate New York. If you've ever been there, you know Niagara Falls is a big deal. I mean, you're talking about the height above the water. You're talking about swells of, of just wind and mist and all of this stuff, just the noise. It is terrifying to be over there. And, and Charles slung this rope. They had this, they, they had this crowd that they had built up because they advertised. They put it in the local papers from New York City all the way to the Midwest. They said, hey, come see the amazing Blondin risk his life on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And all these people showed up that day, right? Showed up that day, at some of them, admittedly, probably uh, didn't have the best intentions. Maybe they wanted to see like, hey, we're going to see a guy fall from <laughs> a tightrope in Niagara Falls. But this whole crowd shows up, hundreds if not thousands of people, and Charles Blondin gets on a tightrope. And before he walked across, he was doing all kinds of craziness. I mean, he was really just building up the crowd with all kinds of antics. He got out there. He literally did a backflip at one point on the tightrope. He brought a chair out there. He sat on a chair on the tightrope. This guy was just nuts. He brought a wheelbarrow out for some reason. A little bit later in the day, the same day, he brought a stove out onto the tightrope and was cooking food. True story. You're going, what is this guy's problem? Right? And the whole crowd is watching this going, this guy is incredible. And as he was building up the crowd, this anticipation of this feat to walk all the way across, he got the crowd answering this one question. Right? They were cheering, chanting, you're amazing, the amazing Blondin. And he said, I bet you guys think I'm pretty good. And they're like, yeah, you're the greatest. And he said, I bet you think I'm so good that I could walk across this tightrope with somebody on my back. And they were like, oh yeah, 100%. You could definitely do that. And then he asked them this question. May I have a volunteer? <laughs> right. We laugh because we're like, heck no. And the place just got dead silent. You could hear the crickets, I'm sure. And most of the people were probably in the back like you had that feeling in school when the teacher asked a question of the class. And you're like, oh, dear Lord, don't look at me. Like, I don't want to be called out. And nobody was going to volunteer. But they had built this thing up so much that Charles looked at his road manager, and that was Harry Colcord. He looked at his road manager, and he said, Harry, you gotta get on my back. And Harry was like, Charles, I'm deathly afraid of heights. I can't get up there. And he was like, you gotta get up there. Oh, no. And they were going back and forth. And then finally, Charles talked him into it. And he was gonna put him up on his back and walk across the tightrope. But before they did that, they had this conversation. Charles Blondin looked at Harry Colcord and he said this. He said, from the moment, this is, this, is, this is life or death, this is hugely important. He said, from the moment we step off of the cliff onto this tightrope, till we get across and, until we get back here safely, from that point until we return, he said, you are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. 
In order for us to survive this, we have to be one. And he said, you have to surrender every instinct to save yourself. If the wind sways, you can't do anything. Just trust me. I'll get you there, and I'll get us back, but you have to trust me. And they did it. True story. Harry got on his back. They walked across. It took almost an hour. They came back. True story. There he is on his back. Wild and crazy stuff, right? This, to me, is such a picture of our faith. Right? If you're here this morning and, and you've put your trust in Christ, this is such a picture of your faith. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet made that decision, or maybe it's been unclear to you, then I want you to know this morning it's really just that simple. And we're going to talk about that today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into this? Father, we thank you for this moment to share in your word. God, just an incredible time together as we worship. Lord, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. And Lord, today may each of us anew and afresh stand confidently in your love today, knowing that we've been called, we've been selected, we've been chosen, and we're here to live out your mission. And Lord, I pray that you do something like only you can do, speak to us and transform us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, while the story of Harry and Charles is really a picture of our faith, there's, a, there's another picture to me that really helps illustrate this. And, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, you can go ahead and turn there. If you have a Bible, flip open to there. Maybe you have the North Star Church app on your phone. You got all the notes in there. But in Luke, chapter 10, we're going to be looking at just three verses, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus is talking to some of his followers, okay? So in Luke, chapter 10, this is what it says. After this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And in the very next sentence, look at what Jesus says. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. You see, these are people who followed Jesus for a long time. They had watched him do some incredible ministry. And, and here is Jesus saying, here's the plan, guys. I'm drawing up our, our, our mission. Here's our game plan. I want you to go out ahead of me. I'm going to do something incredible, but I need you to go. Right? The harvest is plentiful. And he's using this, this kind of farmer imagery to say the harvest is really the world, the, the, the people in the world that, that by the Spirit of God, I, I'm going to sort of reap into. I'm going to bring into the house of my Father. Right? That's the harvest. And he said it's plentiful. There's people all over this world hungry for truth. There's people all over this world, in your neighborhood, in mine, at your campus, at your workplace, and mine, that have not either had an opportunity to hear the gospel or have not made a decision to put their faith in Christ. And he said, hey, there's work to be done. Look at the harvest. It's plentiful. And to me, there's a couple small takeaways, simple takeaways from this one passage of Scripture. The first thing we see is that the faith that saves, the faith that really transforms us, the faith that rescues us from sin and death and darkness is the faith that is trust in a person. It's a total trust in not a principle, not ideas or ideology. It's trust in a person. Right? Faith, it's what the, the old reformers used to, the word they used to use was, was recumbency. 
right? Meaning, uh, if you've ever been a, on a recumbent bike, it's the one where you sit back and lean back. Recumbency upon the truth means to rest your total self upon the truth of something. And, and that's, why, that's why I believe the scripture is plain. Ephesians chapter 2 says, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith. Right? By grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Right? He said, ask the Lord. Why? Because it's really about him, not about me. You and I have been invited into a relationship with a person, that person being God himself through Jesus Christ, that is purely on the basis of his grace, not my works. You see, religion says if you obey, if you do the right things, jump through the right hoops, then God will accept you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says because we have been accepted in Christ, because he's already taken care of the biggest problem between us and God, and that's our sin, because we have been accepted in Christ, therefore, we can obey. Therefore, we can step out onto that rope, so to speak. We can put our total trust in a person. We've been saved by grace through faith. And we see that when he said, ask the Lord. It's not about you. It's about him. Right? I found that out in college. As a student athlete, as Pastor Mike said, playing Division I sports, I showed up in college never really having gone to church, had never met a Christian, and had never actually looked at a Bible myself. Until my sophomore year in college, a couple of my teammates their lives have been radically transformed for Christ, and I was empty. I was depressed. I was broken, thinking, man, if I just fill my life up with sin and relationships and parties, and I realized this is just empty. And it was my teammates in the locker room, on the field, that I got to watch their faith, watch them go through adversity, and then began to ask questions, and they just took time and said, hey, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but this is what happened in my life. And in that process, my life was transformed. Why? Because I found out. If you had asked me before then, hey, do you believe in God? I would have said, sure, doesn't everybody? I mean, I'm American, right? Like, God is out there. Sure, God exists. But I didn't have a relationship with him. I didn't know that I could have a relationship with him. And that's what our faith invites us to, right? It's to trust in a person, not, not, not religion, not principles, but in a person, right? That's why I believe Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a preacher in London, England in the 1800s, he just said it so beautifully. He said, it, to a person who's drowning, the, the life buoy, right, that, that lifesaver-looking thing, the ring that's on the side of a boat, he said the life buoy to a person who's drowning doesn't help the person if it's just sitting on the boat. It's not enough for that person to acknowledge that the life buoy is a good thing or that is a, is a successful or, or, or great invention. That doesn't help the drowning person, does it? He said the only help that that life buoy will provide to a drowning person is when he puts it around his loins or he clings to it with all of his life as if his life depended on it. That is a picture of our salvation, right? It's not enough for us to believe that Christ is a savior. Oh yes, he did some good things. No, it's not enough to believe that. We have to believe that Christ is my savior that I put my total trust in him, and I believe that he is the only one who can give me eternal life. Amen? It's the first thing we see, I believe, in this story. The second thing is that the faith that saves, it should inspire action. 
right? While there was a lot of people standing on the sidelines that probably would acknowledge, hey, Harry, uh, excuse me, Charles is great, Harry had to actually step out, right? Harry had to actually do something. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. Ask the Lord, right? Ask the Lord to send out workers, right? Part of why he said that is because, hey, there's work to be done. There's a job to do. There is some action that our faith should inspire. James, the brother of Jesus, I, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus, while he was the only child between Mary and the Holy Spirit, he was not the only child between Mary and Joseph, right? He was the firstborn, and then they had other siblings. And so James was actually Jesus's brother, right? The brother of the Son of God. I mean, can you imagine those family reunions? Like, come on, James. Jeez, like, can't you get it together? Why can't you be more like your older brother, right? But James, the brother of Jesus, knew that Jesus is who he said he is, and he put his own trust in him. And James said, if you see a person who says they have faith, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, this is James chapter two, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, or there's no action behind it? It doesn't, that their faith doesn't in any way, shape, or form affect their attitude, their behavior, their words, their lifestyle, their conduct, their, their work, whatever. If we have a faith that doesn't impact our actions, our day-to-day -day lives, what does he say? Can such a faith save them? What he's saying is not that we're saved by works. He's saying that when, when the gospel penny has dropped, so to speak, when we really recognize the, the gravity of our sin and we recognize this, the supreme value of Christ and the sacrifice of his life, that he gave his blood, dying on a cross, not for his own sins, but for our sins. That the scripture says, in this God demonstrates his love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that when we recognize Oh, you've done this for me, and what can I do but surrender my whole life for you, right? He says, if we have that kind of understanding and it doesn't impact our life in any way, if we can just be okay being casual bystanders and kind of still living in our old patterns of behavior and our old lifestyle of sin, then what James says is that I would challenge you to question your own faith, a faith that saves is total trust in the person of Jesus. And it's the kind of trust that should inspire some action, right? There, there, there is some action. And part of it is not just that we surrender our life and we start attending church and get involved in a small group and read our Bible and pray. All of those are important. Giving, all of those things are important. Serving, yes. But there's another layer to this, right? Because he said, hey, the harvest is plentiful. There's, there's work to be done, right? There's, there's a job to do. Now, full disclosure, I'm from uh, New Jersey, right outside of New York City, and so I've actually never farmed, right? I'm not a farmer. Uh, I don't really know too well the, the, uh, the analogy of planting, sowing, harvesting, that's not really my life. I've never farmed, but, uh, but I have done the dishes. Like I have, I've got a house with four teenagers, and I don't know about you, but any mom or dad in here, if you got teenagers, you got kids, like you know, that stuff can get piled up pretty quickly, right? And I've had moments where you walk in the kitchen and you're like, oh my gosh, can I get some help in here? Like, can I get some help, <laughs> right? Because it's like, there's too much work to do for just one person. And what Jesus is saying is, while 
I'm great, ask the Lord. Hey, there's, there's too much work to be done, right? Th- there's a job to do, and it should not only uh, inspire action, but here's the thing. The faith that saves is also an invitation to join Christ on his mission. It's, it's an invitation. And, and in some ways, that's why I titled this message Selection Sunday. Because I believe that when we say yes to Jesus, we also say yes to his mission, right? And we see it very simply. He said, hey, there's, there's work to do, right? Pray, ask the Lord to do this, right? Yes, and we get it. We go, okay, yes, I should pray. God, you're gonna do something amazing. And then he said what? Go, I'm sending you. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I, can, I can look at my own life sometimes and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you sure, like, you've got the right person for the job? Are, are you sure, like, I, I don't know that, that I feel that qualified, Lord? Here's the thing. God has never called somebody because they're qualified. Remember, you're saved by grace. Through faith, what is grace? It's God's undeserved kindness. You didn't deserve it anyway. Right, this has never been about what you could do or what I could do. God doesn't call the qualified. Instead, you know what he does? He qualifies those he calls. He said, go, I'm sending you. And and I'm sure in that moment, they could have said, wait a minute, Jesus, you were the one who was healing the sick. You were the one who fed the 5,000. Jesus, you were the one who raised the dead and casting demons out of people. There's all this crazy stuff, but Jesus, you were the one doing it. You're better for the job. But Jesus said, what? I'm sending you. You see, each of us at some point has to realize and ask ourselves the question, maybe, maybe when I show up to work on Monday morning at my, at my place of work, maybe you're a manager, maybe you, you are, uh, you've got like decision-making power, maybe people report to you, maybe you are overseeing accounts, maybe you are overseeing sales, maybe you're overseeing the staff, right? Or maybe you're a coach and you've got that kind of responsibility and a team to manage and things to do. Or maybe you're a teacher and you see people looking up to you and you re- realize, man, I've got to pour into these kids. Like, I don't know what it is for you. But you don't have to be in a position of a coach, teacher, leader, manager. Maybe you show up to work and you just feel like you're one of many and nobody even knows who you are and you're just doing, like, you're putting in widgets. Like, I don't know what your job is, right? But, but for all of us, we can feel like, this is all I do. I'm not, I'm not really qualified. Well, here's the thing. God, God has never been about that. In fact, if you go back and read in the Old Testament, God was always in the business of qualifying the called calling those that might have told God, I feel unqualified. Maybe you heard of a guy named Moses who God called to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, right? Well, Moses and God got into it, and Moses was like, hey, you got the wrong guy. This is Exodus 4. You can go back and look it up. And he's like, you got the wrong guy. I've got this speech impediment of kind of slow speech. I can't really formulate my words quickly. And God was like, no, 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 no. I'm sending you. In Judges, Judges chapter 6, there was a guy named Gideon, and God said, Hail, mighty warrior, I'm sending you to go deliver your people. And Gideon was like, No, 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 like I'm the youngest in my family, and my family's the worst in the whole tribe, and our tribe is like the least in the whole country. Like, we're the worst of the worst. What do you mean? And God was like, No, 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 I'm sending you. 
Jeremiah was a major prophet. It's in the Old Testament. Wrote one of the longest books in the Old Testament. This guy had a career in ministry that is unprecedented. And in Jeremiah 1, God says, hey, don't tell me, Jeremiah, that you're too young. You're gonna go to everyone that I send you to. He was arguing that he was too young. What was he saying? I don't feel qualified. And yet Jesus, if you fast forward to Jesus, he was calling these disciples. He was calling these disciples who were, uh, a couple of them were fishermen, right? I mean, not professional ministers. One was a tax collector who was kind of frowned upon in that whole region, that whole nation. One person in his entourage was a prostitute. Uh, there you go. One person that Jesus eventually called was a guy named Saul who became the Apostle Paul who happened to write most of the New Testament, right? God called him, and he was a murderer. He was hunting down Christians, and God showed up and said, I'm choosing you. Each one of those, you know what they probably felt? They probably felt a lot like RJ on the diving board. I don't know if this is the job for me, right? But God said, you know, it's not about you. It's not about your qualifications. And in those days, you know, the people placed a lot of stock in the qualifications of their religious leaders. Like, oh, you've got this theology degree, okay, then you can teach. And so it would be real easy to say, oh yeah, I, I can't do that. I can't share my story with my neighbor, my teammate, my coworker. I can't, I can't invite somebody out to lunch and, and be praying for them or ask them, hey, how can I be praying for you? Because I'm not really like Pastor Mike. And, and the reality is, you know, when we look at this and we realize we're called to be part of the mission, I, I think we're in some ways a little like handicapped at North Star Church. And what I mean is this, we got a little problem and the problem is the highly engaged pastor who's leading this church. And what I mean is this, I'm not blaming Mike Lynch for any problems. What I'm saying is I've been around Kennesaw. We've lived here for almost 20 years. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that guy is everywhere. He's everywhere. I'm at Alatoona High School. He's like, man, I'm over here. I'm doing this thing with the football team. I'm over here. I'm, I'm co uh, assistant coaching the baseball team. I'm like, dude, you're leading a church of like uh, thousands of people. How do you have time for this? Like, ah, that's all right. You know, it's just what I do. And I'm like, okay. And then I go to this middle school event. And lo and behold, who's there? Pastor Mike, what are you doing here? I invite him out to Kennesaw State to speak to our football team, speak to our uh, Wednesday night or our athletic ministry. He's like, man, I'm going to be there. And I'm like, dude. When do you have time for yourself? I was at an elementary school with some football players reading to elementary students. I'm leaving, guess who's driving by in front of me? Mike Lynch, what, what in the world? This guy is everywhere. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we can feel like, oh, he's gonna get the job done. Oh, the leaders and the staff, like, they got this. But, but what about you? Do you realize that you've been invited to a faith that's trust in a person that should inspire some action? And a big part of that action is to join with Jesus on his mission. And, and it begins with how we think. It begins with how we see those around us. It begins with God moving on our hearts to say, God, here I am, send me. And the reality is sometimes that, that's a little bit risky, right? It, it's a little bit risky. But, but you and I don't get a pass. We don't get to say, well, somebody else will take care of it. At the end of his ministry, Jesus said it this way. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? And then he goes on to say, 
Surely I am with you, even to the very end of the age. What's the confidence that we have? How, why, why can we go with courage? Why can we go even when sometimes it's risky because we know he's promised, I'm gonna be with you. It's not really about you. All, had, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He said, therefore, you go. Go be a part of this mission. We call it here at North Star, helping people find their way home, but it really is helping them really discover who Jesus is, right? The reality is sometimes, though, that is risky, right? There was a risk involved with Harry getting on Charles Blondin's back, and he understood it. I want to tell you one story about the risk involved with joining Jesus on his mission. Some of my heroes in the faith uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Elliott. Jim was married to a woman named Elizabeth. She's another hero. But Jim and four of his friends, their names are Pete, Roger, Ed, and Nate. These five gentlemen got a vision to, to share the gospel with a people that had never had an opportunity to hear the gospel, right? And as they were praying... They got wind of a tribe deep in the, in the Amazon jungles of Ecuador. And, and this, this tribe called the Warani people had never heard the gospel. But, but here's the other thing they, they found out about them. They were legendary for their, their bloodthirsty violence. They were he, actually headhunting cannibals. Right, so there you go. Right. But, but they just got such a heart. They just had such a sense these are the people God is sending us to. But they knew it was risky. So they actually took time. They didn't just jump into it uh, off the cuff. They, they, they bathed that thing in prayer. They spent 13 weeks flying over in a small plane over that region, trying to establish contact, sending down gifts, sending down uh, pamphlets, some information, just trying to, to uh, understand and relate. They'd studied the language. They actually became fluent in their dialect so that when they landed and they tried to make contact, they could actually communicate. They did all of this for the hope of being able to share the gospel with people who had never heard. And the day came in 1959 to, to actually, uh, excuse me, 1956, to, to make contact. And, and they landed their small plane, and the four men, excuse me, the five men, Jim, Nate, Ed, Roger, and Peter, the five men got off of the plane, and within the first couple of minutes, Two women came out of the brush and, and began to strike up a conversation. They made their first initial contact. But as the story goes, within that first five minutes, other men came out of the brush, spears in hand, and all five of those men were killed. Tragic story, but there was a risk involved with them joining Jesus on his mission. They knew it, but, but Jim wrote this in his journal some months before. You see the quote up there. He said, he, he's no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He said, even though it's risky, I know that I'm no fool. I can't keep my own life. I can't keep my own body. I can't keep my resources. The things that God's given to me aren't just for me, and I'm no fool to give what I can't keep to gain something I could never lose. Not just my own eternal life, but that they might have an opportunity to enjoy the same 
eternal life, the same gift of salvation, to have the same transforming, transforming message spoken to them. I'm no fool. Now, you might not be risking your life, so to speak, to be on mission with Jesus, sharing Christ with your neighbors, asking to pray with your coworkers or your teammates. Maybe for you it's a little less risky, but it's still a risk, right? Sometimes we risk our, our reputation or we risk uh, embarrassment or we risk feeling like I don't have all of the answers, whatever it is, even though we might feel unqualified or feel like I don't really have what it takes, I would just submit to you, North Star Church, that I believe Jesus is calling each of us to say yes to him and join him on his mission, to step out, to pray and believe that God might be using you. What if God was sending you to the people you work with? What if you were the one that was going to bring Christ to your teammates, like me with my teammates? There was no professional Christians, there was no ministers, there was no great service. It was a couple of guys in a locker room that said, hey, how are you doing? And they were willing to share their faith with me when I had questions. It's not complicated, but he invites you and I into that kind of mission. That's the faith that saves, and it doesn't just save us. So as we close, I would like us to pray, and I believe that as we pray, there's, there's two kinds of people, at least two kinds of people, here in the room. The, the first group of people, maybe you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior. It's not enough to trust that he is a Savior. We have to trust that he is my Savior. And if that's you, it's really very simple. And what I'd like to do before I pray for the second group of people, I'd just like for us all to bow our heads and have a moment of prayer for anybody here that says, you know what, today is my opportunity. I recognize, I hear, I hear Jesus calling me and I wanna put my faith in him. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray for those here this morning? Father, we thank you for your word of truth. I thank you, Lord, that you've invited us into a relationship with you that is purely by your grace. That even though we are unqualified, Lord, you have selected us by the cross. Even though we don't deserve your kindness, Lord, you have demonstrated that love for us by laying down your life. And I thank you, Jesus, that you were raised to life by the power of God. And today, you offer forgiveness, you offer transformation, you offer new life and hope and resurrection life to anyone who believes. And if that's you this morning, I wanna invite you to just pray with me and just say, Jesus, would you forgive me for my sin? I'm sorry for trusting in myself, and I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe, Lord, that you died on a cross for my sins. And I believe, Jesus, that you shed your blood that I could be forgiven. Lord, would you forgive me for my sin and wash me clean? Lord, I believe that you were raised to life by the power of God, and would you make me new as I put my faith in you? Jesus, I invite you to come and be the Lord of my life as I turn from my old life to trust you completely. Be my Savior and my Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Would you look at me for a moment? If you prayed that prayer, the Bible promises that you are a brand new creation. You're like someone the world has never seen before 
because your old life is gone and now you have been invited into a relationship with God and you could be his son or daughter. And if that's you this morning, what we wanna do as a church, we wanna help put resources in your hands to help you along your way as you start a relationship with God. And if that was you and you prayed that, then we wanna invite you to just text, pull your phone out and text NSC follow to the number that's on your screen. And I wanna welcome you into the family of God as you found your way home. But I believe there's also another group of people here. I believe there's some people in the room that have said yes to Jesus. And you hear, even as I'm speaking to you this morning, it's kind of like the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder and says, you know what I'm calling you to. Maybe you got some fresh ideas. Maybe you're, you're gonna look at your coworkers in a different way. Maybe it's your classmates or teammates and you go, man, I'm gonna be praying for this person. I don't know what it is for you, but you know God's calling me to step out and be part of his mission because it's, what he's given me is not just for me. And I'm willing to give that which I cannot keep to gain that which I cannot lose. And if that's you, I wanna pray that God would give us the courage, right, to even take our shaky, insecure knees of our faith and step out. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you've come. You lived and died for us, and you said, go and make disciples. And you promised, surely I'm with you. Lord, I thank you that you're with us, and I pray for each of us. What we see and hear from you, God, we would have the courage to step out and act, to trust and obey in what you're leading us to. God, that this might be a church that continues to transform the lives and communities around us because we are people engaged with you on your mission. And so we thank you for that, Jesus. Would you have your way in and through us? And it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Could you give the Lord a hand as the band's gonna lead us? As the band's gonna lead us, we wanna say thank you and love you. God bless.